Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Okay, enough, enough thumbs up. Thank you. Um, tonight I'd like to talk about uh, mind. Okay, so she's nodding her hand. She may have a mind, and many of us may have a mind or not have a mind. Let's see what we discover as we explore this term that we use, mind. Actually, what I hope to point at, too, is uh, the different um, dimensions of mind. What's in Zen practice, it's, it's often referred to as small mind and big mind. <clears throat> and um, mind is uh, is actually a little shorthand for the word chitta, and chitta means both heart and mind. It can be translated as either way from the Pali, and so we often, many of us, say Winnie was saying it often, heart mind, the heart mind. And so, um, yeah. And so I'll, I'll give a little context and then we'll see where the talk goes. Because my mind kept thinking about so many things to put in the talk that I've spent most of my time uh, getting rid of things. Because uh, my mind likes, likes a lot of things and likes a lot of teachings and dharma and quotes and it's one of the um, great criticisms I give myself is that I put too much into talks. And, you know, it's okay because all my friends do that also. All my colleagues, almost always, everybody, always, less is better often, but it's still hard to do when you're teaching because there's so much good dharma, you just want to put it all in the talk. At least I do. I shouldn't really speak for anybody else. Um, so conventionally, mind is understood as mental processes, right? The mental processes. It's, it's part of the functioning ego, right? The mind is uh, logical, rational. This is if, if we're doing okay and, you know, on a good day, right? The, the mind is logical, it's rational, it can be analytic. It's, very fu it's about functional mind, the mind that functions egoically to get us through the world and our life, to think about things and, um, and uh, analyze things and be what, and, and it includes what's called intelligence, right? Our intelligence is part of our mind, right? And of, and of course, the the richer flavor of mind includes uh, creativity and imagination, um, and, which is just an amazing part of mind, in my opinion. Right? Can you? How, how does how is it for you when you think, oh, somebody imagined Zoom in their mind? Right. How many, some of you are old enough to remember before there was Zoom, right? And some of you even remember before there was the internet, 
not all of you, but maybe all of you, I don't know. But, you know, it's, and, and it's just wild that somebody just thought of these things, right? And now they're, they're life, they're reality. And of course, if, if we were sitting formally at Spirit Rock, I would point to the building and I would say the same thing. It's a beautiful building that the meditation takes place in. And I know the person who thought of it, right? He thought of, he thought of Spirit Rock. Actually, I'll, I'll acknowledge him. James Barra is one of my colleagues and teachers. He's the one who had practiced at IMS many years, and he wanted a place on the West Coast, and it was his idea, and he had this idea. And now we've got, you know, all these, you know, a few hundred acres and this beautiful residential retreat center that nobody can use because nobody thought of the of COVID-19 of course we hadn't thought of that but we think about it a lot this last year I think all of you have thought about COVID-19 at least once right if not more right meaning it really occupies part of our mind and our intellect and it's an important piece you know, I have the good fortune to have gotten my second vaccine. I'm really happy about that. It, and I know vaccines not for everybody. So some people don't think vaccine is good. And that's, they may be right. And for themselves, for sure, they're right. Okay, but I'm not in that camp. And uh, and so, but you see, and it's and so much of this is all mind and how we use our minds, how we think about things right? Thinking and planning. And of course, when we're sitting here, you notice your mind doesn't stop talking, right? Has anybody noticed their mind stop? Right? Oh, there we go. Jason, Greg, Greg, it's always his mind is always off anyways. <laughs> his mind is totally an Upeka world, you know, very neutral. <laughs> He's shaking his head. We we play together a little. Um, but but it's really but for most of us, I won't say everybody, it's like, you know, I sit down and I can get very quiet sometimes and I've had my mind both um calm and stop for periods and I've also had my mind cease. That's rarer, but it does happen. But that's rare compared to the every day. Every day, and it, like today, I'm doing. I've been doing a lot of thinking because I think a lot about these talks and what I'm going to say and what's right, what would be helpful, what do I want to say, what's meaningful, where are they at, what would be useful. I mean, it, you know, and it's not just once. I wish it was just once, but it, you know, you you work with what you've got. So and so, there's the, you know, the thinking mind, planning mind, uh, com commentating about things, remembering, discursive mind, and then of course the rambling mind, which just rambles, right? Which uh, um, um, Tuere talked about, papancha. It's one of the best Pali words. You should all remember it. it. It's one of those words where it describes what it sounds like. Papancha. Just goes on and on. and It just goes... Ch -ch 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 -ch. And it can talk about anything because it doesn't care what it's talking about. It's just that's what it does. 
it proliferates. It's the proliferation of thought. And all of this, that what I'm describing, is in the realm of small mind in Zen, in Zen practice. It's talked about as small mind. And uh, the great um, author Annie Lamott, she says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. Right? My mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. Because sometimes that's what our minds are like. They're just like... <laughs> the feeling I have sometimes is, oh, get me out of here, right? And all, of course, all I'm talking about is my thoughts and ideas and beliefs and rambling and renumerating and going over and over whatever it is that my mind thinks it needs to think about like you know 375 times in the last you know two hours so this is in the realm of small mind but also there's psychologically it's talked about in some psychologies in gestalt they, they talk a little about relaxing our identification with mind and coming into the present moment. Fritz Perls, who was one of the founders of Gestalt, he said, lose your mind and come into your senses. Lose your mind and come to your senses. And that's part of what we're doing here. We're letting go of the usual involvement with our mind, with our ideas, with our beliefs, with our evaluation, with everything, and just try to get here in the lived experiential moment of a human being being alive. Which doesn't mean thoughts stop, but we're not so identified with them, we're aware of them. And I'll speak more about that. There's a real difference between having a thought and being identified with a thought. Okay. So, of course, another way the word mind is used is, uh, you may have heard this, is mindfulness. And mindfulness, right, and really comes from the, from the teachings of Satipatthana. Satipatthana. And sati is sometimes translated as mind, I think of mindfulness as, uh, uh, well, no, I'll say it this way. Um, uh, sati, in one, of the, in one of the translations I looked up, sati means remember or bear in mind, to remember. And that's very common for a way that traditionally mindfulness is talked about as remembering. Remembering the moment, like now, meaning being aware, mindful of this moment, remembering. But it also, it's like if we lose part of ourselves, like if I lost a member of my body, the arm, and I wanted to become whole, I would put it back together, right? So to remember means to become whole or complete in the present moment with what's alive and sitting here right now. That's one of the beautiful ways I understand this teaching of mind or, or sati, meaning to remember, to become whole. And I believe it's what we all seek. 
because we know that potential. We know it uh, sometimes intellectually, sometimes uh, uh, in a heartfelt way, sometimes in a body-felt way. We know that there's more to us and to what it means, what's the potential for us to be complete, to be whole, W-H-O-L-E, right? And then, of course, I think of mindfulness often as a subset of awareness. It's a focused awareness. It's a directed awareness. I'm being mindful of my breath, right? Um, and in Buddhism, the mind is also, the word is chitta, as I said, heart-mind, right? It's the third foundation of mindfulness, is chitta, is a mindful of states of mind and heart, mindful of uh, both thoughts and ideas and beliefs and memories and all kinds of thinking and and but also um, of moods and emotions and mental states and the quality of mind that may be here right now, the atmosphere of mind. And so you can and you can be aware as we get quieter and more settled, grounded in, in the body and on the ground, we can start to be mindful of our mind instead of just being identified with our mind, right? We can be uh, aware of uh, if the mind is is tight or tense or relaxed or if it's closed or if it's open or if it's concentrated or if we're mindful or if it's colored by wanting or fear or anger or or peace, or ease. It can have different flavors of mind can be here. And I was, and when I first wrote this talk, which actually many years ago, I wrote some version of this talk, and I was looking at the old version from like uh, um, 2003, like 2003. So I'm like, oh wow, it's not bad. Some of this is pretty good, I was impressed. But um, and and it reminded when I would first uh, was thinking about mind, I remembered a song that was big when I was a kid, and I won't sing it, but I'll I'll you know I'll kind of say it a little. It's called um, "I Just Dropped In um, to See What Condition My Condition Was In," and some people I can see some people are nodding; they remember it because it's a song in certain way it's about meditation because that's all we're doing is we're dropping in we're being here to see what condition our condition is is in and the song goes here i printed out the lyrics i woke up this morning with the sundown shining in i found my mind in a brown paper bag within I tripped on a cloud and fell eight miles high. I tore my mind on a jagged sky. I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. <laughs> I could keep going. There's a lot here, but uh, it's already a stretch for me to sing to you. <laughs> uh, but I'll, I'll read you a little more. Uh, 
I push my soul. And, and remember, the word soul originally meant consciousness. That's a very interesting thing. In the, I, I can't remember if it's the Greek or the Latin, but it meant consciousness. That's what was being pointed to as soul. So he said, I push my soul in a deep, dark hole, and then I followed it in. I watch myself crawling out as I was crawling in. I got up so tight I couldn't unwind. I saw so much I broke my mind. I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. And then he he just goes on and on. And of course, when I looked up the song today, they said, oh, this was psychedelic rock, this song. <laughs> And uh, it may not actually have been about meditation back then, but that's how I relate to it now. <laughs> uh, so, um, um, so the the small mind, right, that we've been talking about, and then the understanding of mind in Buddhism is um, there's not just the small mind. There's more than that. And uh, Albert Einstein said it so beautifully. And it's, I really like Albert Einstein because he was a scientist and he was very, uh, in my opinion, kind of brilliant and really uh, changed the whole world. I mean, Einstein, in, with his intelligence and his study and his dedication to his art, which was the art of science. And he's, but he also was very spiritual. And later he said, later in his life, he said, the intuitive mind is a wonderful gift. The rational mind is a faithful servant. It's odd in the West how we have come to honor the servant and ignore the gift, right? We have come to honor the servant the rational mind, and ignore the gift, the intuitive mind. And so as we start to move into what's called big mind, right, then we're looking at this intuitive mind and beyond intuitive mind, right? This is the mind of true nature, of Buddha nature. This is the luminous mind, and the way the Buddha talked about it is in this very famous quote. I don't know if we've said it here or not. I can't remember. Maybe Greg said it. He might have said it. Yeah, it's a great quote. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored, colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand and so do not cultivate this mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free from the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way truly understands, so for them there is cultivation of this mind. Right? And this is, this is really what we're doing here, is we're all, we've all been paying attention, getting here, developing the skills to study the heart and mind and to see the difference between the two components that the Buddha points at, right? The mind that's colored by the attachments that visit it. 
that, that get the mind that gets obscured by our attachments, our identifications, our holding on, our clinging to something, right? And then we also all have glimpses of the heart-mind when it's unobscured. It's like, oh, I'm here, is the feeling. And it can be a very big feeling and very, very... Uh, very radiant kind of feeling, but it can also be a very quiet, happy, satisfied, subtle, sublime sense of, oh, this is it, I'm here. And it's not even a big deal because what's here is not a big deal. What's here is what's true about who and what we are. And so, what we're doing here is looking at the whole show, big mind, small mind, the mind that gets colored by attachments. And we want to be very kind to that mind. Not only kind to that mind, kind to the one who has that mind that gets colored by attachments, right? And identifications. And it's one of the great paradoxes of practice and what it means to let go. It's the paradox of both identification and disidentification. And in a certain way, we need to do both. Both are important. Small mind is important. Big mind is also important. And it's not really one or the other. It's how do we relate to the whole show which we may be bigger than all of that in some way, or consciousness consciousness may be freer than all of that. <clears throat> so um, the paradox of, of holding on and letting go or grasping and letting go. And so you could, of course, ask yourself a very simple question right now. What are you holding on to or what... What have you held on to today or in the last hour even? Right? Has it been a state of mind or a feeling or a thought or a body sensation that you wanted to continue? Oh, I'm going to keep this. Or, or, the, or an understanding like, oh, I got it. I'm going to write this down so I can tell everybody when I leave the retreat I got it and how good it is and how good I am. That's very normal kind of way of how the mind works on retreat as it moves through its different realms of reality of both big mind and small mind, right? And so it's a, it's a paradox, right? And, you know, what are you holding on to, your identity? And of course, if I was talking to myself, I'd say, are you holding on to Eugene? Or when I look at the screen, of course, I could say, are you holding on to Aaron or Jason or Brett or Mary Ellen or Lisa B or, you know, whoever it is. It's Melissa or Lisa, Aisha, Hannah Joy. Nice names. <laughs> but, but, you know, are we holding on to that identity and who's holding on to it? 
Am I holding on to Eugene? Why do I have to hold on to Eugene if I'm Eugene? <laughs> nobody, nobody else is Eugene here on the screen. At least you haven't told me, right? I mean, Tawere may be Eugene, but we don't think so. We talk about this at times. <laughs> Who's who? Am I Tawere or am I Eugene or she Eugene or she Tawere? Uh, here's uh, another quote that I would like to use. This is from from the Majjhima Nikaya. This is a Buddha talking to his um, his to the practitioners, to the monastic community, and I um, and it says, "How do you construe this, practitioners?" If a person were to gather or burn or do as they like with the grass, twigs, branches, and leaves here in Jetta's Grove, would the thought occur to you, it's us that this person is gathering, burning, or doing with as they like? Okay, I'll say it again because I want it clear. How do you construe this? If a person were to gather or burn and do as they like with the grasses, twigs, branches, leaves here in Jetta's Grove, would the thought occur to you, it's us that this person is gathering, burning, or doing with as they like? Right? So the, the practitioners are pretty smart. They say, no, no. And he says, why not? And they say, because those things are not ourself and do not pertain to ourself, right? So they're pretty, pretty good. They're with it. They're not, they're not leaves or grass or twigs and whatever people do with it, they're not doing it exactly to me, right? Which I think all of you probably would agree with if, you don't, if you're not too non-dual right at the moment, okay, but... And then the Buddha goes on, he says, even so, whatever is not yours, let go of it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term happiness and benefit. Whatever is not yours, let go of it. The letting go will be for your long-term happiness and benefit. And what is not yours? Form is not yours. Feeling is not yours. Perception is not yours. Formations are not yours. Consciousness is not yours. Let go of it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term happiness and benefit. So this is a radical teaching for most of us. It's radical what the Buddha is saying. He's saying let go of form. Form means body, right? Form is not yours. Feeling feeling he's partly he's saying Vedana the feeling tone but we're broadening it a little because we're Americans and we can broaden things like that you know when we want meaning feeling meaning emotions or moods or anything like that and then perceptions they're not yours you may have perception it's not yours right mental processes right formations is the word I used before is also Right? They just happen on their own. Consciousness is not yours. It's also happening on its own. You're not in control of consciousness. So let go of it. What does it mean to let go? Relax with it. You don't have to throw it away. You don't have to get rid of it. You don't have to push it away. You don't have to deny that it's here. We just 
don't hold on to it. We relax, right? We don't hold on tightly. We just know it. We're aware of it. We're mindful of it. We're resting in the awareness that is part of what's called big mind, right? And it's a it's a beautiful component of practice to play with. And I use the word play often because we all work too hard because the United States of America is a compulsively work-as-much-as-you-can kind of society that we've all um, inherited. Whatever our subcultures are in this country, we still are live in this bigger uh, atmosphere that is like, oh yeah, work, working hard is like the best thing. And, you know, it's good to know how to work. It's good to know how to not work. It's good to know how to do. It's good to know how to not do. It's good, I believe, Greg was pointing at it this morning. It's good to know how to meditate. It's good to know how to not do anything and just be here and see what happens. Because it's all happening on its own. So here's a way you could play with it a little if you want. Like, you know, I have a body, or here's how I play with it sometimes. Okay, I have a body, it's here. You know, I like this body. It's, you know, it's been a pretty good body, except when I when I get in horrible bicycle accidents, it's, the body's been great, you know. But, uh, but it also has its um, uh, limitations. It's not going to last forever. And of course, I can assure all of you that that's true for each and every one of us, that this body that you're relating to as me will not last forever. And that's not a bad thing. It's just the nature of everything. All the seeds sprout, grow, and they end. And that's just part of the reality of impermanence. And if you want to know more about that, I'm teaching a retreat two days after this is over on Maranasati, mindfulness of death and awakening to life because they are totally, uh, they're together. They're not separate, life and death. If you have life, you'll have death. If you have death, you'll have had life. It's part of the deal. So the body, right? I, ha I, I have a body, but I am not my body. That's not who I am, right? I have feelings, emotions, I get angry. I'm, I'm not the anger. In the small group, somebody said, oh, that's helpful. I said, oh yeah, you can have all the anger you want. Just don't believe the story that's generating the anger. Feel the energy itself of the aliveness of the, ener of the anger itself because it's alive and that's good, good life energy. That's right here, right? And so, you know, and I have all kinds of feelings, right? I have all kinds of thoughts. I'm not the thoughts. And I've been plenty identified with my thoughts in my life, but I'm absolutely sure I am not my thoughts. I can be aware of my thoughts, and they happen. And as I've said, sometimes they're good thoughts, and mostly they're a little boring, but you know, or repetitive or papancha-esque, 
Papancha Asatskar. I never said that before. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and you know, and I have roles. I'm a teacher, but I'm not a teacher, right? I teach, but that's not my identity. I mean, it's a relative identity, okay? It's small sense of self. I'm a teacher, but it's not the whole story, you know. And I'm also a father and a husband, and but I'm not just my role. There's more to me than the role, right? And I had when my daughter was young, she wanted to understand more about Buddhism. This is a long time ago, and I was playing with her. I really, I'm trying to remember how old she was if she was six, seven, eight, you know, maybe nine. She wanted to know more. It's something about uh, us and what happens. I said, and I was trying to get her to understand something about awareness, right? And I didn't preach Buddhism to my daughter. Thank goodness I was a good dad and I didn't do that at all. Um, you know, I just lived what I lived and she got to do her life, which is, she's done fine. Um, but, uh, so I said, okay, sit here and look at me. And here, you want to see something interesting, I would say. And I would say, look at me. And we'd be sitting close. Look at me and see that, uh, you know, I'm your father. But also see I'm not your father. Right? That on a bigger picture, that's not the, the, the totality of who and what we are. I was pointing her at that. So I said, okay, look at me, see that I'm your father, and then see I'm not your father. And I said, okay, and I'm going to look at you and see that you're my daughter, and also see you're not my daughter. And she, uh, actually, I probably did it the other way around. I said, yeah, I said, I'm going to look at you, I'm going to see you're my daughter, and you're not my daughter. And actually, she loved that. She loved me not seeing uh, her as my daughter because she got that I was seeing her as something more than my idea of who she was. And then when I said the other, this is what happened. I said, okay, see me as not your, as your dad and not your dad. Dad, she went, uh, no, okay, that's enough. That's enough. She didn't, she, didn't want, she didn't want to do that too much. It was a little too ego dystonic at that age. You know, it was probably a little too young. But it was, but it caught her attention definitely, about consciousness and being an embodied consciousness, right? And the role she was in, which, you know, and of course, what's beautiful, what, what I'm so grateful for, having the good fortune to be a parent and, um, and watching how it changes the role over time. Like, it's totally different to be a father when the, the my daughter was a baby, was born. I mean, you know, I caught her coming out of her mother, right? I mean, I I knew her pretty quickly when she was born, <laughs> and uh, and of course, then you know, when she was a baby and little little girl, toddler, and walking, and the magic of her learning and and being a parent and teaching her and you know supporting her coming into humanity, and then her you know, being a kid and being, a, you know, having a lot of fun, all kinds of fun with her as a kid, and then her becoming uh, uh, a preteen and an adolescent. It was like, oh my God, an adolescent. This is not, I like the baby was great, but the preteen, the adolescent, they can be a little problematic at times. And so you have a whole different relationship, and there's a different 
skillful means that's needed at each stage as a parent, right? Same as a, and then and then a teenager, and then going off to college, which was a big deal, and you know, and then taking her to college and leaving her at college. Really, I could cry because. Of course, I really cried when I left her at college. She went to Minnesota, the University of Minnesota, which was great for a kid from San Francisco. Great to go to the Midwest and get a little grounded in reality and get out of San Francisco. There's no offense to San Francisco, which I love, but it's it's a little you know it's a little um, bubble, and uh, and the Midwest is way more grounded. And she did great and. And then, and then she was going to thought she was going to stay in in Minnesota, and it didn't work. What she thought was going to happen, and she went and moved to New York, which you know, by me, I, I also had lived in New York when I was young. I was like, great, go, but you know, and so and and different function as a parent for being skillful in all these different phases of her life, including now. Now she's totally grown adult, successful in her work and everything. And she doesn't need a father most of the time, and really most of the time, I, you wouldn't. I don't. I'm not playing a role where I have to be dad. But every once in a while, she'll call me up and she'll say, "Okay, uh, I need you, Dad." Right, and then it's, then I need to be dad again. But mostly, she's an adult, and I'm. It's so fun to relate to her as an adult because I don't need to be dad in that ways that I needed to be at different ages. And so it's pointing at how skillful means change in the life of immediate reality of lived reality, and that's true for us on the retreat. Actually, often as the retreat deepens, we need less and less skillfulness. We need to do less and less, which I believe Greg was pointing us at a little bit. Let's just be here, because that's all it is. That's all we're doing is being here now, right? So, and the bigger picture about mind is we're stewards of our body, our emotion, our mental processes. And we don't have to identify with them. They're they're temporary. It's all temporary. It's all impermanent, right? And if you don't identify, even right now, don't identify with your body, right? Right? Don't identify. It's just a body sitting here. Of course, you can look around the room. You see all there's all these other bodies sitting here. Don't identify with any of them. <laughs> right, right. You know, or don't identify with your feelings right now. Maybe you're bored, or excited, or interested, or curious, or you have mind states like curiosity. Don't identify with it. Don't identify with your opinions. Even be aware of them. And, and notice where are you if you don't identify with body, heart, or mind? Then where are you? This is a kind of way to play with this kind of teaching about identification. And of course, it's a profound teaching that. You know, in many spiritual traditions, that it says, "Where are you? 
or who are you or what are you right now if you don't identify with the usual ways we identify with body, heart, and mind. What, what is here? Because the body's still here, the thoughts are still here, the feelings are still here, the thoughts, the, the, everything's still here. But if we don't identify with it, then where are we? And of course, this points to an important component of practice, which is the component of self and not self. And the, the idea that we're our thoughts and we're our, we are our feelings, we are our sensations, we are our body, which has its relative truth, but it's not the whole truth. Hmm. And so the Buddha, as I said earlier, he said, luminous is his mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. For this, the noble follower of the way truly understands. So for them, there is a cultivation of this mind, this luminosity that is not attached to what it knows. It just knows what it knows. And as I said, at least in small group, maybe in one of the bigger meetings, Ajahn Chah always say, always used to offer his teaching and say, oh yeah, be aware of the that which knows or the one who knows. And when we start to relax that attachment in this way, the heart-mind opens or is spacious or there's clarity or all these different um, qualities of spirituality, direct knowing, synthesis, what, what Einstein called intuitive knowing or intuitive intelligence, peace, stillness, and also, of course, not knowing, both knowing and not knowing, live right here, right now. Because the knowing is not a reified knowing. It's not a concretized knowing. It's not a thing. It's a living experience of knowing and then not knowing what will happen in the next moment. And as one of my teachers said, uh, this is, he, said uh, he said, true knowing always comes out of not knowing. True knowing comes out of not knowing. And of course, I'll say it in another way. Rio Khan said it, my beloved Zen teacher, which I may have said this before too. The Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Right? The Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north, how will you go south? If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you arrive? The Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. It's a beautiful teaching. And he's pointing to big mind and little mind. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you arrive? We need to be able to discern. But we see that it's all mind. And then from 
my beloved, another beloved teacher who I never studied with personally, but doesn't matter at a certain point. You just get the teaching so you love the person. This is from Suzuki Roshi. He said, everything that everything is included within your mind is the essence of mind. Of course, we could change it too. We could say, and, and Suzuki wouldn't mind at all. He's really good. He, the, that everything is included within your heart-mind is the essence of heart-mind. To experience this is to have a religious feeling. Even though waves arise, the essence of your mind is pure. It is just like clear water with a few waves. So you hear how he's describing big mind and small mind together, right? Even though waves arise, the essence of your mind is pure. It is like clear water with a few waves. Actually, he says, water always has waves. This is brilliant teaching, really, from Suzuki Roshi. Water always has waves. Waves are the practice of water. Apart, waves, waves are the practice of water. To speak of waves apart from water or water apart from waves, that's delusion, right? Water and waves are one. Big mind and small mind is one. Actually, he said it, I'll say it the way he said it. Big mind and small mind are one. Big mind and small mind are one. When you understand your mind in this way, you have some security. As your mind does not expect anything from outside, it is always filled. The mind with waves in it is not a disturbed mind, but actually an amplified one. Whatever you experience is an expression of big mind. Whatever you experience. And this is the great paradox. Good or bad, right or wrong, green or yellow, whatever it might be, this or that, yes or no, it's all an expression of big mind. The activity of big mind, I'll continue with Suzuki Roshi, the activity of big mind is to amplify itself through various experiences. So this is, this is what we've been doing is nothing. <laughs> We're just sitting. That's all we've been doing. And that's what they that's how they teach uh, meditation and Zen. You just sit and you look at a white wall and all of reality reveals itself. And you see, oh, your thoughts, your feelings, your reactions, your likes, your dislikes. When are they gonna ring the goddamn bell? You know, everything. It's all right here. And, and you don't do anything about it. This is in the old days, at least when I did practice in Zen Center, they didn't give any instructions about being mindful. The whole instruction was just sit, just do it. And, and, um, and it doesn't mean we blame ourselves for now doing mindfulness. Mindfulness is great. <laughs> really, it's a brilliant, brilliant teaching and system and, and uh, fantastic. But it, it still is pointing us, can we be here in this moment and be aware now? 
because here now is where we wake up. This moment is where awakening happens. Whatever this moment is, whatever the terrain of our consciousness is, right now, this is it. And it's so simple and difficult to just be here now, as Ramdas said, right? Just be here now. The last part of what Suzuki said, he said, the activity of big mind is to amplify itself through various experiences. In one sense, our experiences coming one by one are always fresh and new. But in another sense, here he's speaking to two different levels of reality. In one sense, our experiences coming are coming one by one are always fresh and new. But in another sense, they are nothing but a continuous or repeated unfoldment of the one big mind, of reality expressing itself. And sometimes when I teach and talk to people about being aware of reality, I always say this, you are reality. This is it. This is reality. You are reality. Or sometimes, especially in the with the beautiful influence of Saito Utejaniya, he uses the word nature. We often say, oh, let's, I'm going to go out into nature. And we forget that, oh, we are nature. This is nature. Thoughts, feelings, ideas, beliefs, sensations, they're all nature. And we can just relax and be aware of nature sitting here manifesting itself endlessly. Oh, now that I said the word endlessly, I wish I'm going to try to do this. There's a great quote from Dogen. Let's see if I can remember it. So one one thing I'm not happy about my bike accident. My memory is not as good as it was. But let me see here, because what what I just said about this kind of uh, this this endlessness. Here's. Um, here, I'll try it. So the quote from Dogen goes this way. He says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. Right? Great, just great teaching, because that's what we're doing here. Each of us is studying the self, the small sense of self. Who, you know, whether we're studying Brett or Pilar or Sean or Diane or Chitta or Julio or Mark or... That's it. We're just studying the self, right? So to study the Buddha way is to study the self. And Dogen goes on. To study the self is to forget the self. And that's also what we're doing here. We're relaxing or letting go of our identification with all the things that usually make up our idea of self. So to study the Buddha way is to study the self to study the self is to let go of the self. Um, it is to, um, yeah, to let go of the self, then it goes on, the quote, to, to let go of the self is to, um, 
become intimate with all things. To become intimate with all things. It's beautiful teaching. Because everything opens when we let go of the clinging, the identification, the reification of reality, and then all of reality is here, or all of nature is here, right? And here's the part that I, I want to try and remember. So to study the Buddha ways, study the self. To study self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to become intimate. The word actually in Japanese, or the character in Japanese, intimate, is also awakened. The same character, intimate and awakened. It's beautiful that way. It, to study, to let go of the self or forget the self is to become intimate or awakened with all things. To be awakened with all things is to let go of body and mind or drop off body and mind and drop off the body and minds of others. Drop off body and mind and drop off the body and mind of others. Drop off our identification, our clinging, our holding to those ideas of body and mind and the body and mind of others. Not believing our projections, our ideas, our, our habit in what, about ourselves or others. So we drop off body and mind, drop off body and mind and others. Um, and then it continues. Maybe it goes this way. When we drop off body and mind, or no, it doesn't go that way. Drop off body and mind, drop off the body and mind of others. No trace of enlightenment, no trace of awakening remains. It's a great line. This is it here. No, no trace of awakening remains. Right? Like that's a killer Zen teaching. No trace of awakening remains. And this no trace continues endlessly. No trace of awakening remains. And this no trace continues endlessly. And that's a beautiful, wild, profound teaching. In my opinion, of course. Okay, and of course I have pages more of quotes and things to say, but I'm going to try to stop now. Really... To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to become intimate with all things. Uh, when we become intimate with all things, we drop off body and mind and drop off the body and mind of others. No trace of awakening remains. And this no trace continues endlessly. Let's sit for a moment, please.
for your presence tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.